let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Today on CityCast DC, some Virginian unions have come out against the plan to move DC sports teams, the Capitals and the Wizards, to Virginia. More on DC is shutting down and what it says about the state of media, and why it seems like polyamory is on the rise in DC. I'm here with The Washington Post's Tayu Armas and CityCast's Priyanka Tilve to break down this week's news. Oh, and after the interview, CityCast CEO David Plotz will be joining us for a conversation sponsored by Urban Pace Real Estate about some rare new construction in Capitol Hill that you could get in on. Stick around to learn more. Today's Tuesday, February 27th. I'm Bridget Todd, and here's what DC is talking about. What is the latest and what's going on with this plan to move the sports teams to Virginia? Yeah, so that plan right now is basically making its way through the Virginia General Assembly, where it's definitely, you know, facing some hiccups, some major opposition from some key senators. But a really key wrinkle uh, that emerged in that plan last week was the fact that this group of Northern Virginia unions basically said that they were opposed to the deal, you know, even though it might offer more jobs. And even though, you know, they had spent, I think, six weeks negotiating with Monumental, which owns the Caps and the Wizards, and and with uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin's administration, um, they felt like uh, the deal sort of was was not good enough and did not meet their demands as far as wage protections and, and labor standards. What kind of workers are we talking about here? Like, who do the unions represent? Yeah. So in particular, we're talking about construction workers um, and then also uh, hospitality workers. Um, There's two unions in particular that uh, Virginia and Monumental had been negotiating with. One is Unite Here, which has a couple of different locals. One of them actually represents the workers who sell concessions at Capital One right now. And then, you know, the, the construction unions as well. And it was basically sort of about what, again, kinds of protections and what sorts of wage minimums you might have building both the arena and then also all this private development that is supposed to go next to the arena, around the arena. And I think what is sort of tricky and interesting in in this particular situation is that unlike D.C. and Maryland, Virginia is what's kind of traditionally called a right-to-work state, which basically just means it has far weaker labor laws. And, And so unions don't get as much leverage as they might in a place like D.C. or Maryland. What might this mean for the deal? Like, are Democratic lawmakers in Virginia unlikely to go ahead with it or support it if these unions are not on board? That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, especially Northern Virginia, especially in Alexandria, you know, a lot of state senators, city council members in Alexandria basically say, if labor is not on board, I'm not on board either. And so until labor joins in and, and, you know, agrees or sort of if and when a deal is found, I think this could really jeopardize the votes it needs to pass the Alexandria City Council. In Virginia, there's like some weird 
kind of machinations happening and this might end up going through in in the state budget which doesn't really require like a full vote of lawmakers but things are looking sort of tricky and and interesting on on that front I think this is so interesting because I feel like so the arena deal gets announced what early December it was right and then ever since then it feels like we've just been hearing like the Alexandria community is against this. The labor unions against this. Obviously, D.C. government is against this. Virginia Senator Louise Lucas is against this. Like, just like one after the other, the opponents to this deal are stacking up. And like, who's on the other side? Like, Youngkin and obviously Ted Leonsis. Do they have people on their side right now? Yeah, I mean. I do think it's important to note that this is not like there isn't sort of a universal view of this, especially in Virginia. There's a lot of business groups. The Alexandria Chamber of Commerce has come out in favor of the deal. I think a lot of people see an argument that the mayor of Alexandria and other city leaders in Alexandria have made to sort of diversify the city's tax base. It's really, really heavily based on like residential property taxes. And the idea is basically, you know, they want to create something kind of like the wharf, right? You know, that would bring in all these other sorts of revenue streams so that property taxes for for homeowners don't have to keep going up. So I think a lot of those more business-minded people are are in favor of this and, and some residents, frankly, right? But, you know, I think the reason we've, you know, maybe we in, in the local media have focused so much on the opposition is because these are influential groups. And so if you don't have labor, if you don't have someone like, you know, State Senator Luis Lucas, things get tricky. So what's next in all this? Like, Are there dates we should be looking out for? Yeah, I mean, I think really the next big thing is basically the end of the Virginia legislative session, which I want to see is in a couple of weeks. What's basically likely to happen in, in part because of someone like Senator Lucas is that this is basically just going to have to be hashed out in the budget. And what happens is that a bunch of state lawmakers meet in a conference room and kind of figure it out. And there's a lot of things that Democrats want, you know, that they might use to sort of barter with Youngkin in exchange for the arena. So, you know, I mean, Senator Lucas has talked a lot about like creating a recreational marijuana market. She's talked a lot about toll relief in Hampton Roads, which is the area that she represents. Democrats are also pushing a higher minimum wage in Virginia. So there might be some sort of you know, backroom negotiation to to end up making this possible. Or it could die there, frankly, right? You know, if if people sort of put a hard line. But at this point, there is no individual bill that is going to be sort of debated, you know, on the floor in public. And that is the big thing that Senator Lucas has, you know, basically been opposing. And and because she opposes it and controls this very powerful committee, that's kind of what has jeopardized the chances of of that sort of making its way through, through the GA. Just to quickly back it up for listeners who haven't been following this, Lucas is the head of what committee exactly? She's the head of the Senate Finance Committee. And so the way that things work, and I'm not a General Assembly expert, but basically the way that this works is that for something to make it through as a bill, it has to pass one chamber and then the other chamber. It goes from a specific committee and then to sort of the whole Senate or the whole House of Delegates as a whole. Senator Lucas chairs, again, the Senate Finance Committee. So she basically gets to decide what that committee hears and what it doesn't hear. And she has refused to docket a Senate bill that would have created, you know, all the things necessary to build the arena. And then a House bill that had actually made its way through the House, but would need support from the Senate. So that really only leaves this, you know, one remaining legislative option, which is doing this kind of in this 
slightly more backdoor way in, in the budget. Okay. Wow. And they are going to pass a budget by March 9th, which is when the session ends? Uh, <laughs> that's that's a big question. Um, okay. you know, historically, there have been some delays on that. Virginia has like a really rushed legislative session, I think, compared to a lot of other states, including Maryland, which I think is 90 days. Virginia is 60 days. So, you know, we'll have to see. But I think, you know, in a couple of weeks, we, we might expect a little bit more arena news or not. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree. That's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. Hey, I mean, I really appreciate your coverage of this because it seems like it's getting harder and harder to find this kind of like in-depth local coverage, especially with the news of DC is shutting down. Um, we did an episode about this yesterday with uh, my co-host Mike, but I know that a lot of folks are still reeling. My social feeds are still full of people who are really angry and upset and have a lot of questions, both about what happened with DCist and also what it means for media more generally. Priyanka, what do you think? Personally, hearing that news on Friday morning was pretty devastating. Taro, I'm sure you felt the same way. It, it feels like we've just been slammed in the last few months with bad local news story after bad local news story. And I mean, obviously, like in terms of the ecosystem, not things happening around town. The Washington Post metro section lost a lot of people. Wall Street Journal cut a bunch of people from their local DC bureau, now DCist. And like to lose the entire website in one fell swoop, like to wake up that morning and not be able to go to DCS.com anymore. The, I guess, slogan of journalism, right, is that we write the first record of history. And it feels like 15 years of that history is now lost. Like, obviously, there are other outlets that were covering similar things, but there are some stories that are only on DCS.com. And it's actually really notable to me that a lot of the the, several of the reporters who were laid off, Jacob Fenston covers environmental reporting, Morgan Baskin, housing reporting. Some of the stories that they in particular were doing were exclusives to DCist or like they did the first, like they they took the first hack at it and then other news outlets would kind of jump onto those stories afterwards. Hector Zade is the immigrants communities reporter. Jenny Gathright, criminal justice. Like these are, um, it, like especially criminal justice. To lose a criminal justice reporter at this time, when crime is so central to the issues that people in DC are talking about, it just, yeah, it feels like a lot. Yeah, I don't know, Teo. How were you feeling when you heard this news? Yeah, I mean, it's just horrendous, right? I feel like there is already not 
as much local reporting in the DC area as as we need, right? I mean, this is such a large metro area. It's DC and Maryland and Virginia, and there's so many different things going on at once. And DC has did like such amazing work. I mean, you know, the work uh, of of some of the people you just highlighted, right? Like such unique, creative, like really irreplaceable coverage in terms of having people who are kind of covering the region through these sort of topical lenses. And I should also note, like, DC isn't paywalled, right? You know, I think that's that's a big part of, like, what makes the outlet so great is it's, you know, it has this sort of really accessible tone. It was literally accessible in that you didn't have to pay for it. It's just sort of a huge, huge loss for local news in the region, which is so, like, ironic. I feel like I've seen people on social media platforms talking about, you know, DC probably has more, like, journalists per capita than anywhere else in the country, but they're all writing about the White House and Congress and, you know, all this sort of national political stuff. Who's, you know, paying attention to the stuff that, you know, hits home and and covers us in our neighborhoods and local government and, you know, all these like really just amazing people-centered stories that DC has, has been able to cover so well. Yeah. And like, given the financing crisis that DC media is in right now, like I'm anxious about whether the reporters that were laid off will be able to find new homes for their reporting. And if they can't, they're just going to leave. And if they leave, then we lose their voices entirely, which is depressing. Yeah, just this morning before we got on this recording, a a friend of mine sent me a text about opposition to a sobering center that's meant to be opening like on essentially on my street. And I was Googling to try to find information. The only place where it's being talked about right now is DCist. I click on DCist and because I'm like, oh, what's going on in my on my street? Then you get that big square thing that's basically like, you can't read this. Sorry, like, don't have any information for you. One thing that I did find on Twitter, um, you know, or X, I don't whatever. There's been this whole movement for like hashtag unlock DCist, right? Like a lot of people are tweeting with that hashtag to try and compel WMU to release the site and allow people to access the archive, but. Until Dem- until WAMU actually allows us to do that, someone posted, and we'll like retweet this from our account, someone posted a way, like a hack, basically a way around it, where you have to access your browser's developer tools console. So like basically if you go, if you're on Chrome, you go view, developer, and then go to developer tools. And then there's like basically a line of code that's in this tweet that you should copy and paste into the console section of the developer tools. This sounds really complicated and it took me a second to figure out, but it worked basically. Once you paste that in there and hit enter, you might have to type allow coding first or something like that or allow pasting. But then you you type this code in and all of a sudden you can access dcs.com. So I mean, obviously what I just described is jumping through a lot of hoops to access something that should be accessible to us without this, but it is a temporary option while we try to compel the WAMU decision makers to give us access. And speaking of WAMU's decision makers, has it become clearer like what the plan is for WAMU on the business side? I feel like not. I mean, they've released statements, of course, and they've really pushed this narrative about a pivot to audio. But I've seen a lot of skepticism for that online because the reporters that they laid off used to be on WAMU as as journalists, as reporters pretty frequently. Jacob Fenston in particular, the environmental reporter, has been lauded as one of the best audio reporters, audio journalists that 
was at the company and they laid him off. So that seems to negate the idea that they're trying to center audio as their focus. So, I mean, and then, yeah, they also had a podcast department that has been shrunk significantly over the years. So it seems really weird to say that, like, we're going to focus on audio because audio is what we do best when you haven't really been doing audio as your central focus for a while now. For sure. Yeah. I think it was Morgan Baskin that had a a tweet or an ex post, I guess. I mean, yeah, basically just saying what you just said, Priyanka, right? Where like, you can't have audio without people to appear on audio and talk about the reporting and like feed all of that. Right. And and that's, you know, what um, all their great reporters were doing is, is coming on air and, and talking about their stories. Um, and I mean, that's, that's a hole you have to fill and there's a lot less people around to, to do that. I do know that in a landscape that feels like every day there's a new outlet shuttering or announcing layoffs, a lot of my friends in media are sort of doing their own thing, starting their own, you know, initiatives, you know, with with other folks who have been laid off. Is there any good news on the horizon in terms of DC's media landscape? I mean, not much. <laughs> that was a heavy sigh. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I did see was this new outlet called Wild Side. It's been created by the former editor-in-chief of District Frey, which also shut down last year. So, you know, bittersweet. But Wildside does seem cool. It's like a new DC-based media company. It's all about kind of highlighting the local creative community. So it's going to be covering culture and arts um, in the DC region. So that's something to look out for. That is like an area of DC reporting that I feel like in general is underreported, like In terms of what we do have in our media landscape, it's a lot of politics and news. And I feel like the arts and culture side, though it exists, gets kind of buried. So I think it's cool that they're launching a media company specifically to focus on that. And speaking of wilder sides of things, did y'all see that piece in Axios breaking down how DC is seeing this growing interest in ethical non-monogamy and polyamorous relationships? I did. I'm so curious about it. Okay, so basically it does seem like people in DC might have a reputation for like not being very out there or whatever, but according to Axios, more and more folks in DC are interested in polyamory. 31% of DC singles surveyed last year by match have been in a, quote, consensually non-monogamous relationship before. 32% of this year's DC OkCupid users said that they would consider an open relationship compared to just 27% back in 2014. And the dating app Field has seen over a 500% increase over the last three years in the number of DC app users, including terms like ethically non-monogamous and polyamorous in their profiles. Mm -hmm. Wow, those are huge increases. That's wild. I'm on some dating apps myself and I have seen more people like including ENM or ethically non-monogamous in their profiles and like to the extent that it was notable where I was like, this is interesting. Like there's more people doing this, but to hear the stats laid out like that is, yes, I guess wild is the term we're using. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure if this is addressed at all, but how does that compare to like the US as a whole? Like is DC significantly higher than that or is it sort of on par? 
That is not a question I can answer from my research, but I can tell you that people who run dating apps that in part cater to people who are ethically non-monogamous have said that they're seeing DC as like a specific hotbed of growth for poly folks. Annie Agnone from District Frey spoke to a marketing person from Field and said that DC was specifically a place they were looking at in terms of growth of poly people. One of the things is that a lot of people in DC work from home and apparently that has a correlation with people who might be interested in poly or ethically non-monogamous relationships. And then further, I guess it sounds like DC has some very specific cultural norms that maybe make being poly or ethically non-monogamous unique. You know, a lot of folks work in politics, right? And so you might be a little bit skittish to come out and be like, oh, I'm poly or I'm ethically non-monogamous or interested in those lifestyles if you have some like, you know, high profile government or politics job. And so I can't speak for whether or not it is a higher concentration of these folks in D.C., but it does sound like D.C. has some very specific reasons why it is a hotbed and why it might be a little bit complicated to do in D.C. I sort of wonder now also if people are people are kind of right openly ethically non-monogamous, kind of, you know, what you were talking about, Bridget, with this sort of high profile politics thing or, you know, with younger generations also, if people are sort of marrying the two and having, you know, high profile jobs and whatever it may be, but also kind of being public about um, being poly. I don't know. So fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I'm also curious about like how much of this is actually new versus how much of it's just out in the open now. Yeah, that is a really good question. So one thing that was really clear is that the pandemic has been a big driver of people getting interested in exploring these lifestyles. It sounds like when people had a lot of time and space and energy to just sort of think about who they are and what they want and what they want out of life and romantic pairings, a lot of them were like, hmm, that actually might be a poly situation or an ethically non-monogamous situation. That also tracks with how people explored gender identity and, and representations of that identity, like people got much more open and fluid about new things when we were all in the pandemic. Um, Axios also points to this idea of these like shifting relationship and social dynamics and needs. Um, they say, as care communities have gotten smaller and marriages have evolved from being primarily an economic contract to a relationship more about love and even the pursuit of self-actualization, more people are recognizing that one spouse can't meet all of their needs. This is from Keith Scheichinger, co-founder of the Modern Family Institute and the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition here in D.C. And so that makes sense that people, if folks are just looking for something different out of their romantic and social relationships, they might turn to being poly. Yeah. I'm also just fascinated that there is a polyamory legal advocacy coalition in D.C. I didn't realize that there were organizations specifically out there, like basically polyamory PR firm type situations. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is interesting, though, but like as they point out, like polyamory is not all fun and parties and all of that. There are also really unique challenges that folks have to deal with um, and very real stigmas. Axios reports that there are limited laws protecting and supporting people who are in these kinds of relationships and that unlike gender, race, or sexual orientation, relationship structure is not typically in a category that is protected when it comes to things like housing or work. And so you potentially could be fired if, if somebody didn't like that you were in a poly relationship, or it could make your housing situation difficult. Mm, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Are there resources, like other other resources for people who are in poly relationships and, and need help or people who are curious about learning more? Yes, we will throw a link to a list of resources in the show notes. But 
A couple to point out. So one of the apps that we've talked about in this episode is Field. I wouldn't say that Field caters to like only poly people. They're, they kind of like build themselves as being for open-minded people. And so I actually went to, they had a, a big introductory DC event a couple months ago at the line on Adams Morgan that I attended. And I remember thinking like, wow, this there are a lot of people here. This is like a pop-in event. Like that's how it felt from the inside. But that District Frey piece said that more than 1,500 people RSVP'd to attend and that the line to get in snaked all the way outside of the hotel down to the restaurant and that they reached their capacity very quickly. Their capacity was 250 and they just had to like turn people away. And it really does seem like this is an under-supported population in DC specifically because because of how big that turnout was. They also had free drinks, but <laughs> I don't know. That, I don't know. <laughs> so definitely check out Field as a resource. There's also meetup groups. If you go to meetup.com, Open of DMV, Black Poly DMV, Be More Poly in Baltimore. I feel like I should also shout out my good friend, uh, Miriam Diana at Heart Centric Relationship Coaching. She is like a queer friendly poly a sex and dating coach. So if you're looking for advice or resources, she's a great person to check out. She also has a podcast called The Sensitive Slut, which I really enjoy. If folks are interested, it does seem to be like a thing that is really taking off in DC. So find out more. Yeah, fascinating. Very cool. Well, Priyanka, Tayu, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, don't go anywhere. In just a second, we've got a segment sponsored by Urban Pace. CityCast CEO David Plotz is chatting with the real estate company's vice president about some new townhomes in Capitol Hill that build on the neighborhood's rich history. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm CityCast CEO David Plotz, and I'm here with Jennifer Felix, who's the vice president of Urban Pace, which is the Mid-Atlantic's leader in new home construction for sales and marketing and my fellow Washingtonian. So Jennifer, we're here to talk about Ebenezer Row, which is a new development of homes on Capitol Hill. And I'm intrigued by this name. Where does it come from? It's a wonderful story. It's actually uh, right next to the Ebenezer United Methodist Church, which was founded in 1838. And it was one of the first African-American congregations in the district and actually was part of the Underground Railroad. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that. I what, know. what block is this on, on Capitol Hill exactly? This is going to be the 400 block of D Street Southeast. I used to live right around there. So what is special about that part of Capitol Hill. I lived there back in the 90s, and it's a beautiful neighborhood. And my sense is that it's just getting livelier and livelier and livelier every day. So what I like about Capitol Hill and where you are is the close proximity to Barracks Row and also to Eastern Market. Every neighborhood in D.C. has its own different feel. Capitol Hill is just a little bit more serene. There's a lot more green, tons of various parks. Also, it's really super close if you're going to the Ballpark District. That is... Great. And I, my understanding is like there are so many new restaurants down there. There's a Trader Joe's down there, which is heaven. Yes. So one thing, again, about living on in the proximity to Barracks Row is how close you are to Eastern Market. And what I like about that is, yes, you do a Trader Joe's and I'm a fan of Trader Joe's, but I also like the fact that you actually can go to the market if you're looking for something a little bit special. So you can go there and get your meat. You can go there and get, you know, your various cheeses, you know, then just go to Trader Joe's to get your crackers that you love so much with little figs in it. What are you guys building in Ebenezer Row? The property is going to offer a total of eight condominiums, which are actually in four buildings. I'm going to say the number two a lot, but (laughs) per row home is two residences. 
each residence is two levels and each residence is going to offer you a two bedroom, two and a half bathroom. These are all a little around 1300 interior square feet. So that's fantastic. And then we also have a fee simple townhome. This residence is also new construction. It is close to 2,500 interior square feet. It is a five-bedroom, five-and-a-half bathroom, I know. And it's going to offer you two parking spaces. And what is the pricing like on this? The Fee Simple Townhome would be priced at $1.75 million. And then the condominiums will be priced from eight seventy five dollars up to just under $1 million. Jennifer, it's not just that these are new construction. It's also these homes are packed with special features. Do you want to tell us about a couple of your favorites? Sure, absolutely. As far as the residences, one, I think it's important um, because they're two-level condos, like they each have two levels, you feel like you have your own little small house. The main floor is going to offer you a powder room, which is very nice. Uh, we do have wide plank oak flooring. It's going to be a little bit more of a matching to it, so that's a little bit more unique. Bathrooms are large. Of course, the primary suite is going to offer you two vanities, the walk-in showers with the frameless glass. Um, we also are very generous on our closet size, which is hard to find Ooh. in Capitol Hill. And also our ceiling height is nice and tall, including on the upper level. Um, so you're going to be dealing with nine-foot ceilings throughout. Oh, and then also most importantly is the kitchen, which as we know is the heart of the home. We're doing induction cooking. Love which, it. Love it. Yeah, we're excited about it. So induction cooking, for those that are not familiar, that are listening, it is, one, environmentally friendly. Two, it's incredibly fast. And it's also more of an even cook than you're going to have from gas. Most chefs actually would prefer to cook on induction versus gas cooking. The only thing that you need to do as a consumer is buy some pans with enough metal in it, which is a lovely housewarming gift. In addition to that, um, our appliances are a little bit different. What we've been seeing more and more in the market is Thermador, and we're actually doing Gen Air, which is a level up. All of our cabinetry is custom by JSUS. Um, you're also going to have the quartz countertop, which, of course, is going to waterfall. All the kitchen islands are quite long, which is nice, built-in trash, etc. We're, of course, doing rings as far as for your smart homes. So they're done very well as far as just kind of how you're going to live and the property and how it lends itself. Jennifer Felix of Urban Pace, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me today. Again, check out EbenezerRow.com to learn more. That's E-B-E-N. Easy, E-R, row.com. Gosh, that's satisfying to say. We'll have the link for you in our show notes as well to make it nice and easy for you to find. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, become a member. We'll have that information in our show notes as well. And check the show notes for more information on Ebenezer Homes. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from around the city. Talk to you then. <laughs>